Letters get written for a lot of different reasons. There's there's a huge you know gamut of reasons that you could use uh, for letter writing. You, we le write letters to tell someone how we're feeling. We write letters to update them on what's going on in our lives, to communicate information that someone needs to know. Uh, we write letters to correct. We can write letters to warn. And Paul's letters to the different New Testament churches have everything that we just described and more. Paul had a lot of different purposes in writing these epistles or letters to the early church. Paul wrote a variety of topics. He wrote from a variety of places. And one thing was consistent throughout all of Paul's letter writing. Every single thing that Paul wrote, he wrote for the benefit of those who were receiving the letters, to those who were reading them. He wanted them to grow. He wanted them to become better people. He wanted them to be better followers of Jesus. And so he wrote these letters to edify, to build them up, to live out the mission that we have all been given. And that was true even when Paul lost his freedom. Several of the letters that Paul wrote, he wrote from inside of a jail cell. And to understand this, we're going to go through a little bit of history this morning. I'm going to walk you through some of the history leading up to uh, this letter to the Philippians that we're going to be reading a passage from today. And we're also going to see that the old adage is true, that history is destined to repeat itself. Uh, we, just because we're 2,000 years down the road doesn't mean that everything has changed. And there's a lot of things that have remained the same. So as Paul dictates his letter to the Philippians, which is the church in Philippi, Paul is in prison. And he's being persecuted uh, for his faith, for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Paul is not one to back down. Uh, he's one to stay the course. And he wouldn't recant his story. He stood strong. And because he did, he was thrown in prison. And we'll talk about more about the circumstances about why he was thrown in prison. But this is not just a story from 2,000 years ago. That's not something that we don't hear about anymore. It does happen. This happens today uh, in our world uh, that we live in. And there will come a time when this will happen here in America, in our communities. There will come a time where just mentioning the name of Jesus and teaching about God's love for us that was demonstrated through Jesus' life and his death on the cross could get us in trouble. Uh, why was Paul put in prison? He was put in prison basically for stirring up trouble, for causing commotion, uh, for not just getting in line and going along with where everyone else was going. And as we walk down this road today and we remember Paul's story, I want you to think a little about what we see happening around us today. The things that we see happening in our lives, in our time, about what could happen uh, today in our nation, in our church. What are the different things that we could face uh, with regard to freedoms being taken away and truth not being able to be proclaimed freely and worship not being able to take place? Uh, there's a lot of parallels between some of the things that Paul and the early church faced and what we uh, could be facing soon. Near the end of Paul's third missionary journey, probably around the year AD 56, uh, Paul and his traveling companions, those who were going with him on these missionary journeys, were making their way from Asia Minor, uh, which is where Turkey is today, to Jerusalem, primarily by boat. They were uh, sailing around. And their intention was to deliver funds to the Christians in Jerusalem who were poor uh, and who were enduring a famine. There was a massive famine going on right now, and Paul wanted to provide for the the poorer Christians in Jerusalem. And on their way, they stopped in Miletus, uh, where Paul met uh, with the elders from the nearby church of Ephesus. 
And during this meeting, Paul revealed to these leaders that the Holy Spirit had warned him that he would be imprisoned when he arrived in Jerusalem. And these are the prophetic words that Paul shared in Acts chapter 20. He says, and now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Some uh, other translations say I am compelled by the Spirit. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And so we see uh, that Paul is not ignorant of what's waiting for him. He knows exactly what he's heading into. And in many cities that Paul visited, city after city, believers would prophesy to him uh, about his coming imprisonment. But the Holy Spirit throughout that continued to nudge Paul forward toward this imprisonment. In fact, like I said, the word Paul used was compelled. He had to. And maybe you felt that way before about certain aspects of your faith story. You knew God had called you to do something, to speak to someone, to go somewhere, and you felt it so strongly that you just couldn't not do it. You had to do it. The Holy Spirit was pushing you in that direction. So Paul knew that these prophecies were not intended to dissuade him from the course he was on, but instead were to prepare him for the coming hardships. It wasn't a warning saying, turn around. It was, brace yourself, get ready, you're going to be facing this. Paul had many enemies in Jerusalem, and he knew he might be arrested in prison when he arrived. This confirmed it. But he also knew that this suffering was part of God's plan for him. This is what he was to face. So most likely, when he arrived at Jerusalem, it was at this point that Paul delivered to the church the famine relief funds that he had collected during his third missionary journey. During this missionary journey, which was to a lot of Gentile churches, Paul collected all these funds for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So from Paul's early letters like Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we know that Paul was very concerned uh, about the role that these funds would play not only in bringing relief to these poorer Christians in Jerusalem, but also strategically in bringing Jewish and Gentile believers together. There was a huge rift, divide still, between Jewish and Gentile believers. And Paul's hope, his expectation, was that by bringing Gentile funds to Jerusalem, which was the capital of the Jewish uh, conversion church, uh, that... Paul hoped that the Jewish Christians, when they received this gift from the Gentiles, that their thankfulness would make them eager, eager to receive the Gentiles as full brothers in Christ. But Luke's account in Acts does not mention at all the delivery of these funds. Instead, it highlights the concerns the Jerusalem church had regarding Paul's ministry and what he was doing and what he was teaching. And probably this is an indicator that the Jerusalem church did not appreciate the famine relief funds as greatly as Paul had hoped they would. So there was a little bit of a disconnect between Paul's expectations and the reality of when these funds were received. And it was a little bit of a miss as to what Paul was hoping it would accomplish. Um, you ever think that could happen today? 
where one segment of God's church would misunderstand the actions of another, where one denomination would attack another for having slightly different understandings of how we're supposed to live out our faith story. Think that could happen today? Nah, that could never happen. But instead of rejoicing in the generosity of the Gentile Christians and affirming Paul's ministry, James and the elders informed Paul that certain rumors had reached Jerusalem concerning Paul's teaching and his practices. And specifically, they were concerned about the rumors that Paul taught Jewish Christians living among the Gentiles to disregard traditional Jewish practices like circumcision and other Jewish tradition. And the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem strongly believed that all Jewish Christians should maintain traditional Jewish practices. They should continue uh, being observant. And James and the elders were concerned that the local Jewish Christians would reject Paul because of these rumors. And we need to stop for just a second in, in our history lesson and point out that these rumors about Paul were false. That isn't what Paul was teaching. That's not what he advocated. Throughout his letters, Paul stood behind the moral law of God found in the Old Testament. So none of that changed. The moral law that God gave to his children remained in Paul's time and in his teaching. And on top of that, he never encouraged Jewish communities to abandon the traditions that they had added to the Mosaic law. Instead, he said he himself followed Jewish tradition when he was in Jewish communities. But he did teach that with the death and the resurrection of Christ, a new age had dawned. They were living in a new era. And as he explained in his letters, neither Gentiles nor Jews were required to maintain those traditions. So listen to the way he described his position on these matters in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this, When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. And even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So while he's in Jerusalem, he was spending time in the inner court of the temple. The temple grounds included both an outer court and an inner court. The inner court was right before you would enter into the holy place and the holy of holies. And the outer court was separated from the inner court by a gate. And the outer court was called the court of the Gentiles, okay? Because people from all nations were permitted to enter the outer court to come in and to worship and to, uh, to uh, take place with temple business. Uh, anybody could go there. But the inner court, the court of Israel, was reserved for Jews alone to come and pray. And so Gentiles who entered the court of Israel could face death. They did not allow a Gentile to enter into the inner court. And when Paul was in the court of Israel, he was recognized by some Jews who were from Asia Minor. And earlier, these same Jews had seen Paul with a man named Trophimus, who had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. And Trophimus was also from Asia Minor, so they were familiar with him. And the Asian Jews knew that he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. So when they saw Paul in the inner courts, the court of Israel, they wrongly assumed that Trophimus had also entered that court and they were outraged. They lost it. And in response, these Jews started going throughout the city, getting everyone riled up against Paul. 
and an angry mob dragged him from the court of Israel, intent on killing Paul then and there. But when the commander of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem heard that the city was rioting, he rushed in to stop the disturbance. He put Paul in chains, took him into custody, and he ended up in prison. So that's how Paul gets thrown into prison this time. There were several times he was put in prison. This was one of them. So a couple lessons I want us to learn from Paul's story before we get to the passage we're going over today, because it's definitely relevant to what we're going to read and talk about. And the first thing I want you to see is this. Doing the right thing and living according to the Bible does not exempt you from persecution. It promises it. When you live according to the word of God, it does not free you from persecution. You would think, oh, if I do all the right things, then I'm good. No, in fact, scripture tells us when we live according to the word of God, we are promised that we will face persecution. This is not one of those fun promises to hear, but it's a promise nonetheless. We see it in Paul's life. We see how it plays out. But more importantly, we see it in the words of Jesus himself in, in John's gospel, uh, chapter 15. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. So two things you can take from this. You're going to face persecution and people aren't going to listen to you when you talk about your faith. So uh, it's, it's one of those things. It's like it's not pleasant to hear, but it's reality. And here's what I want you to see about Paul. Paul did not run from this. He embraced this. He held on to this. He ran towards it. Now, it was not to cause trouble. Paul did not intentionally stir up trouble. That should never be our intention but to live out his mission despite the opposition that he might face. No matter what the personal cost, Paul was going to drive forward. And, and the other thing I want you to see about this story is that there are times when the persecution comes from inside the walls of religion and not just the outside. We see persecution happening in the world around us from outside the walls of the church from outside the walls of religion. We see that. But what Paul shows us, and we even see this happen today as well, persecution also happens from within the walls of the church. And the times in which we're living are moving rapidly towards a day when we won't be able to freely worship. It's going to happen at some point where standing up for biblical principles will not only invite ridicule, but will invite persecution as well. And I'm not talking about communist China. I'm not talking about militant Muslim Iran. Uh, I'm talking about here in America. I'm talking about where freedom of religion is one of the founding principles. And church, we need to be ready. We need to understand that a day will come when that will no longer be the case. And in many ways, in some cases, it already is here. We're seeing this begin to take place. And I don't think I'm surprising anyone with this. I don't think I'm catching you off guard. Many of you saw, uh, read on social media or saw in the news the, the mandate uh, in California now that they can't sing uh, when the church gathers together uh, because of COVID. And the governor said that the church is not allowed to sing. And so, I mean, it's just one example. Uh, but I'm telling you that I think it's an indicator of the government is capable of saying you may no longer worship freely. And obviously laws would have to change and things would have to shift, but I think we're seeing a tide turn in our country and we need to be prepared as a church and not get caught unaware when something happens somewhere down the road. And I'm not saying it's this year. I'm not saying it's next year. I'm not saying it's not. I don't know when things are going to change, 
But all I know is the Bible promises that in the end times, we will face persecution and it will become increasingly difficult to live for Christ. And we need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare ourselves as a church and we need to be ready for whatever may come down the road. We know this, we feel this. And in many ways, it seems like in our country today, all viewpoints are tolerated and celebrated except when you stand for what Jesus lived and what the Bible teaches. You know, that's the only thing that's not accepted and tolerated uh, at all times. And even this should not surprise us. The Bible told us this was going to happen. Scripture tells us of times when people abandon truth and reason, where morality is flipped upside down. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. And we see people in our nation today, uh, we see people in leadership who are proclaiming what is evil is good. And what is good is evil. We're seeing this take place in our world today. It's not coming, it's here. And according to what the Bible teaches about what's coming, it's going to get worse, not better. And I'm sorry today's sermon uh, isn't a feel-good message. I enjoy preaching encouraging sermons. I do. I enjoy making people feel good with the truth. And notice I said with the truth, not some phony, serpy, half-truth stuff. I, I, I love preaching the truth that makes people feel good because there is truth in the word of God that makes us feel good. But I have a responsibility to preach not what makes us feel good, but what grows us. You know, the, the totality of God's word, what strengthens us to preach all of God's word, whether it's pleasant to hear or not. And today is one of the more challenging parts for us to hear. So Paul is struggling. He's being persecuted uh, because he's a faithful follower of Jesus. And he writes this letter that we're going to read a portion of today to the church in Philippi, who were also facing some difficult times. And they were being ridiculed, oppressed, and even jailed by the government for their beliefs as well. And to move forward beyond Bible times, uh, the Holy Spirit knew that the Philippian church wasn't the only church who was going to face opposition when they lived out their faith. The Holy Spirit knew that this was not centered on the Philippian church, and it would never spread beyond that. He knew that there would be Christians today who would face the same thing. And the instruction Paul gave then is just as relevant today about how we can remain strong in the face of opposition and persecution. So let's take a look. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So Paul has seen a lot in his travels. He's started a lot of churches. He's met with believers all across the known world. And he's seen the good and the bad and he knows that it's not an easy time to be a follower of Jesus. And the Christians in Philippi were being strongly tested here. Uh, so what do you do then when life gets hard for you, when cooperation turns to conflict inside the church and peace turns to persecution outside the church? Paul is writing to help them navigate this challenge. 
And, and the first thing he hits them with is this. Our focus has to be to live as citizens of heaven inside the community called the church. That's what he calls them to. Live as citizens of heaven inside this community called the church. Philippians 1.27, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So about 60 years before Paul writes this letter to Philippi, the island of Philippi was attacked and conquered by Octavius, uh, who was a Roman commander who later became Emperor Augustus. And it was made into a Roman military colony. And because of that, every inhabitant of Philippi was granted citizenship into the Roman Empire. And by the time Paul is writing this letter to them, the residents of Philippi, including those in the Philippian church, wore this citizenship as a badge of honor. It was an honor to be called a citizen of the Roman Empire in that era, in that part of the world. And living for Jesus and proclaiming him as Lord put their Roman citizenship at risk. You see, to the Romans, there was only one king of kings and lord of lords, and that was Caesar. That was the emperor. Paul wanted to reinforce to the Philippians that their first allegiance had to be to Christ and to his kingdom. And this is July 4th weekend. We talked about it. We're celebrating our Independence Day, and it's a great time to be reminded that we live in the greatest nation in the world. We are blessed, church, to live in America. We are blessed to call the United States of America home. I love our country. Warts and all, it is a great nation we live in. And that makes this reminder pretty relevant to us today. Because no matter how much we love our country, we need to value our citizenship in heaven more. When we're focused heavenward, when that is our primary focus, no matter what comes our way here on earth, we can weather the storm because our priorities are in alignment with Christ and his mission first and foremost. And Paul tells them they need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the Greek word worthy comes from the root word for weight, heaviness, a weight. And our lifestyle needs to have a weightiness to it. Meaning this, that our lives should prove the reality of what we believe. As we live out our faith, that makes us worthy of the gospel. Like evidence in court, our, our behavior proves our beliefs. And if we believe that the gospel frees us from the power of sin, then our lives should demonstrate that, that we are free from the power of sin. If we believe the gospel transformed a person internally, then our lives should demonstrate it, that we are different people on the inside, and that's what comes out. We need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We need to live like Christ, and we need to live for Christ. And that is what Paul is challenging the Philippian church, to establish that foundation, that we live like Christ and we live for Christ, because that prepares us to stand in the midst of persecution. Parenting, schooling, working, neighboring are all done for Jesus. So Paul says to make sure to live as a citizen of heaven so your life backs up the message of Christ in all that we do. Nothing should get in the way of this. So how do we live worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven no matter what? How do we live worthy? We cling together as a church. We cling together as a church. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Then, whether I come and see you again, or only hear about you, 
I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. So Paul knows that the church was the way Jesus wanted his mission lived out and the way Jesus meant for his followers to grow and be strengthened. That's why Paul took this so seriously to be really the first massive large-scale church planter. Paul traveled on these missionary journeys and established churches in places where the gospel had never even been heard before. And he, he would preach the gospel and he would get people uh, believing in Jesus and then he would rally them together in these newfound churches and he would plant these churches and establish leadership and train them up and then move on and do it again. And this is what Paul did. And he's the reason that the church spread so quickly in the early days is because Paul was traveling around planting and starting these new churches. But we exist for God, but we also exist for one another. That's why the church is here. That's why Trilogy is here. We're here for God, but we're also here for one another. I am here for you and you are here for me. And without the church, we don't make it. That's what the Bible teaches us. We are wired and we are commanded to gather, to be part with one another, to lock arms, to move in unity, to strive together. Without the community God has placed us in, we are weak and we are ineffective. Without the camaraderie, without the serving, without the fellowship, without the accountability, with the friendship, the support, we just aren't wired to do it any other way than together. God made us for the church and he made the church for us. And when times get tough, God gave us the church to depend on. And there's three things Paul knows he needs to see in the church for it to be healthy and functioning as Christ intended. And he tells the Philippian church here, when Paul uses the term standing together, that's the first thing, you need to stand together. It's a military term uh, in the Greek. Soldiers who would stand next to one another and they would not budge one inch from their critical post while under attack because they were together. And when we distance ourselves from the church, when we pull away, and I'm not talking about COVID, although that could be applicable here. I'm just talking about when we pull away from the church personally, when we fall out of practice of attending, when we are, are not involved, when we distance ourselves from the church for an extended period of time, two things happen. We become weaker and we become weaker. You see, we as individuals require the church. We need one another. We need the fellowship. We need the community. We need the corporate body to be part of to, for us to be strengthened, for us to be encouraged. But also we become weaker because we need you. The church needs you. You're a part of this church so you can serve, so you can encourage someone else, so you can bring correction to someone else, so we can work together. God does not intend for us to live apart from the community of the church. We need each other and we stand together. So that's the first thing that Paul saw that needs to be there in a healthy church. The second thing Paul wanted to see was a church that was filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. One spirit connecting us, empowering us, drawing us closer together and drawing us closer to him. And that is so huge that we are striving together to deepen our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. That that is what drives us. That is what moves us. And, that, and the reason this is so important is the third element that Paul said needed to be there, and that is one purpose. When we all draw closer to the Spirit, we're all getting closer to one another if we're all getting closer to him. 
and we're living for the same purpose, which is his purpose. He unifies us as we grow closer to him. So ultimately, we're not part of Trilogy for what we get out of it. We're part of Trilogy to live his mission and to serve one another. And the benefit is that when we do that, when we serve one another, we're stronger personally as well. That's how God's kingdom works. When we put ourselves last, we win. That's a biblical principle. When we humble ourselves, he will raise us up. When we put ourselves last, the last shall be first. I, I know this season, uh, you know, as we kind of talk about the importance of the church and coming together, this season of COVID has been hard on a lot of our church family. Uh, some of you feel disconnected. Uh, you feel like you're not a part of things. And maybe some of you felt that way even before this whole COVID thing hit. And I want to encourage you. Now, I want to, I want to challenge you and, and encourage you both. Uh, fight through that feeling of disconnection. It's worth it to fight through it. It's important to fight through it. It's the only way we win. Fight to be part of the body. If you're feeling disconnected, there's a reason that the enemy wants us to drift away because we are stronger when we are part of the body. Hard times are coming, church. Uh, they're promised in scripture. We see the beginnings of the persecution of the church in America. Uh, and there will come a day where we won't be able to worship freely. And the way we survive is to be intimately connected with one another. So if you're feeling disconnected, please let me know. Reach out to me. Just reach out. Tell me you're struggling. Don't wait until you desperately need the church to try and get connected or get back connected to the church. I want to help. Let me, let me be your pastor. Let me pray with you. Let me help you find a place here at Trilogy where you can feel like you belong, like you're a part of things. And if we can't, if I, if I can't find that place for you and if I can't walk through that with you and arrive at a place where you feel like you belong, then let me help you find a church family where you can because it is that important. We need to connect. We need to belong. We need to feel like we're a part of the mission that God has called us to and we need to move forward in unity. That is where the strength of the church lies, is in our unity with Christ and with one another. And it, it didn't matter, you know, if we go back to now Paul and the church in Philippi, it didn't matter if the opposition was the zealous Roman pagans of Philippi who worshiped Caesar, uh, and they opposed believers who worshiped Jesus as Lord because Caesar was their Lord, or if it was the Jewish legalists who didn't like salvation by grace alone or faith alone with no Jewish traditions, uh, piled on top, Paul can say this to the Philippians because as their father in the faith, he has experienced opposition in the past. He's currently being persecuted now. He's in jail, yet he rejoices even though he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. So Paul tells them, if you're going to live as citizens of heaven in this community called the church, then you're going to have to cling together as a church by working together as a team to proclaim the gospel. While not panicking, but actually expecting opposition to come. And we all need to expect it. In some ways, I really believe living in America has made the church weak. You see, Chinese Christians who grew up in their faith under communist rule, meeting underground, knowing that discovery could mean death, they're prepared to face just about anything for the cause of Christ. And in churches across America, we see people arguing about the color of carpeting and the volume of music. I really believe that the church in America as a whole has become weak 
because our faith has not been tested like it has in some other parts of the world. In some ways, suffering and persecution solidifies and strengthens our faith. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's, it's promised. We need to be ready to face whatever, whatever opposition, whatever persecution comes, and we do it together. We stand together. So how do you respond to opposition? Do you respond with panic or do you respond with courage? I mean, what would happen to you? What would happen to your faith if you were all of a sudden taxed to come to Trilogy? If the government required you to pay special taxes to attend uh, a Christian church? What if the government made you homeschool families, made you put your child in public school in order to attend this church or any church? They said, okay, you can attend a house of worship, but we need time with your kids during the week. What if I was put in jail as your pastor for teaching biblical truth about homosexuality or abortion and everyone who went to Trilogy was threatened with jail? Would you come or would you drop out? Would you join together or would you drift apart? Would you stand together? God says here through Paul, we experience opposition to prove who is real and who is not. And I really believe our faith is proven through suffering. Suffering reveals what is real. It reveals what is real. Genuine faith can stand strong against any opposition because our faith is in Jesus and he's not moving. If he's our foundation, we have nothing to worry about because nothing can shake the foundation that is Christ in our lives and most certainly for the church. Philippians 1.29 says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Now, the first part of this verse makes all the sense in the world, right? I mean, what a privilege to trust in Jesus. We get this. The Holy Spirit draws us to experience his love. He leads us to belief, and that belief allows us to come to faith. There's no greater privilege in this life than to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. But then Paul continues into the confusing part. The privilege of suffering for him. I'm kind of, as I read that, I'm reminded of the movie, The Princess Bride, where Vecini constantly uses the word inconceivable uh, when something happens. And finally, one of the other characters, Inigo Montoya, says this, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. It kind of makes, makes you feel that way about Paul and the word privilege, doesn't it? The privilege of suffering uh, for Christ. And here's the deal. Suffering is a gift that brings Christ closer to the Christian. Suffering is a gift that brings Christ closer to the Christian. Suffering is evidence of our salvation. It will be rewarded in heaven, and it often is a means of winning the lost to Christ. Our suffering could be a means of winning lost people to Jesus. It's like, don't panic, Philippians. The same God who gave you the faith to believe is the same one who is giving you this suffering. This is how we put Christ on display. This is how we prove Christ is real and he's in us. This is an opportunity to gain the attention of the lost. When they see us delighting in Christ while we're suffering, like the Philippian jailer who saw Paul singing in jail after being beaten, he and his whole family came to faith in Christ. 
When people see our suffering and see us rejoicing through it and our faith unshaken, people will come to Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. But this flies in the face of American culture, of the American dream, right? I mean, surely we think the Lord protects his own from pain. I mean, if we're godly enough, can't we avoid suffering? And I'll answer that question with a question. Was there anyone more godly than Jesus himself? If Jesus, being the son of God, could not avoid suffering, I promise you we cannot through our godliness. Jesus' life and Paul's teaching tell us that suffering is unavoidable for a follower of Jesus. Paul experienced it and was experiencing it as he wrote this letter and helped the Philippian church discover how to navigate their way through the opposition that they were facing. And what an encouragement Paul had to be for the Philippians, right? They're, they're surrounded by idol-worshiping and emperor-worshiping pagans, plus opposed by Jewish legalists and loose-living false Christians and infighting amongst church members, yet they could look at Paul Remember his example of delighting in Christ when he was in jail in Philippi and now see his patience over years of suffering, continually demonstrating an optimistic attitude and trust in Christ through it all. And they could be encouraged. And so should we. And I want to close up the message this morning by sharing four things every one of us needs for a successful Christian life. The first thing is you need suffering for a successful Christian life. Suffering is, it's the polish and, and that shines the mirror of our lives to reflect Christ. It's the polish on our lives allowing us to magnify Christ and show the world what he truly looks like. Without suffering, we'd be warped and smudged and broken mirrors of the glory of God. And God is prepared to go to any lengths to make us more like Jesus. The cross proves that. He was willing to sacrifice his son for our redemption. And we can be sure he will stop at nothing to change us. And suffering is one of the more effective instruments of change. So don't look for an escape from suffering. Look for the opportunity to proclaim Christ in the middle of suffering. So what about those who are against you? Jesus showed us through his death on the cross that God's way of dealing with opposition is this. Love them to death. Never stop loving. And I think that's, that's a struggle for me and I think for many of us. You know, as we think about those who are pushing back against the church right now, those who are trying to restrict our freedoms as churches right now, those who are, are uh, trying to keep us down, those who would fight against the principles that we stand for. I, you know, the Bible commands us to love them in the middle of it, in the middle of opposition, in the middle of persecution. We're to love them and continue to proclaim God's love for them. Second thing we need, we need the church for a successful Christian life. You can't do it alone. I can't stress this enough, church. I cannot stress how important this is. And obviously you're here, you're listening to me, you get it. But God gave us the church. And not just to get things done, he gave us the church to get us done. You're going to live for Jesus in this increasingly broken world, if you're gonna do that, you will be relationally connected, 
You'll be serving and in every way a participant in his church, not a spectator. You can't be loosely connected to the body of Christ. Either you're a part of the body or you're not. And Paul calls us here in, 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 this, in this text, he calls us to stand together. He calls us to work together, to support each other, to love each other, to witness together, to suffer together, to glorify Christ together. And today is that day. If you're on the sidelines, today is the day to join the team and to work together to proclaim the gospel to a needy and a broken world. Don't try to go alone. Lock arms with one another and move ahead in unity. Is there going to be conflict inside the church? Yes, there was in Bible times, there is today. But we serve the same God, we have the same mission, we have the same purpose, and we're going to face the same suffering. And Jesus came to bring us into unity in one spirit, one purpose. And so as we face conflict in the church, what do we do? We're a family, we work through that. And we continue to, to grow in our faith and in our love for one another. Third thing we need, you need a purpose for a successful Christian life. When things get difficult, those who press onward are those who are relentlessly pursuing a purpose. I've had seasons of my life where I've tried to establish running as a pattern of my life and, and you know, exercising through running. And the times where I've been most successful was when I had a purpose to it. When I was training for a race, I was entered into a race and I knew I had that date on the calendar where I was going to be running in this race. I paid my entrance fee and I trained harder and I was more disciplined because I had purpose in what I was doing. And the same is true of our faith. When we have a purpose that we're striving towards, it encourages us, it keeps us on track. We're more disciplined. We know where we're going and nothing will stop us from getting there. So why do we do all this? Why are we, why are we a church? Because of who Christ is. Paul told us earlier in this letter to the Philippians about the incredible blessings that are ours in Christ. And, and the better ones that await us with Christ in the future. And this is the motive. Enjoying Jesus more now and enjoying all of him in the future. The more we experience him, the more the world will see him through you and through us. Because your purpose, our purpose, is a person. And that is Jesus. That's our purpose. For doing what we do, for being who we are. And the last thing we need, we need salvation. For a successful Christian life. And that may seem like an unnecessary thing today, right? Or to say. I, I, how can we have a Christian life at all if we're never saved in the first place? And yet there are countless people who carry the name of Christian and yet have never experienced Jesus personally. You need salvation. If you've never taken the most important step of your life to invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, today is the day for you to ask God to open your heart to believe so that you might be saved. True faith in Jesus. Only Christ can cleanse you, can forgive you, can change you and make you totally new. Only Christ can give you love and peace and joy. Only Christ can make you right with God. We need to turn from our sins. We need to turn from our own agenda. We need to turn from our own ideas, turn from our own efforts and turn towards Christ and his plan and his purpose for our lives. So if you've never done that, I wanna encourage you after we're done today, would you take a moment 
and just invite Jesus to come into your life. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I want this to be real. I want it to be personal. I don't want this to be superficial. Just use your words and talk to him and invite him to come into your life. And if you do that, would you drop me a note, send me an email, a Facebook message, a text, and just say, hey, Pastor Jeff, I made things real with Jesus today. And I'd love to reach out to you and just help you learn what it means to follow him and uh, to help you to stay on course. I pray that, I do pray that none of us experience in our lifetimes the depth of persecution the Bible describes will come one day. I pray we don't. But until it does, and when it does, we stand together. We stand in Christ. Let's, church, let's stand in Christ together as we face whatever comes next. We will not bow, we will not stop, and as one person wrote on the prayer boards yesterday at the prayer service, no matter what anyone else says, we won't deny Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for our faith, which is in you alone. We thank you for the church. And our purpose as a church is you. Your mission, your love, your message, your gospel. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. And God, we thank you for one another. God, we thank you for bringing us together as a church family. God, we thank you for the people that call Trilogy home. God, I pray that you would join us together more strongly than we have ever been. That God, we would be prepared to face any opposition. We would be prepared uh, to encourage one another, to serve one another, to support one another, to strengthen one another, to correct one another. God, we would truly be the community that you want your church to be, living in unity with one another, with one spirit and one purpose. God, help us to be that church. God, as we do, make us effective. Make us effective at reaching people with your gospel. God, let lives be transformed because of the light that comes from Trilogy Church. Use us, God, to make a difference in this dark world. Help us, God, to stand strong, to stand together, to stand in you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.